YouTube is full of people doing stunts, uh, whether whether it is jumping off a building or uh, you know taking a skateboard down a flight of stairs. But that's not the kind of stunt work that I'm talking about in terms of how it impacts not only the plot, but also a character. And that is what great stunt work in the movies does. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Biff, bang, pow! We talk about the history of movie stunt work with TCM staffer Scott McGee, author of Danger on the Silver Screen. And because there's always more action in the sequel, I welcome back Ed LaRusso to talk about his latest DVD Kickstarter for a rarely seen epic starring Wallace Reed. Do I expect you to talk? No, dear listener, I expect you to subscribe. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Shocking. Positively shocking. Citizens! I welcome you to these games in the name of your emperor, the divine Tiberius. In the beginning, there was action. When actors couldn't talk on screen, they could throw fists, leap onto horseback, swing from chandeliers with a sword, climb skyscrapers, and drive way too fast. 
stunt work, feats of death-defying daring do, have always been part of what draws us to the movies. Yet as Scott McGee says in his book Danger on the Silver Screen from TCM and Running Press, it's never really had the respect that other disciplines within the art form enjoy. McGee, Senior Director of Original Programming for TCM, looks at 50 films that were influential on what kind of action reached theater screens. From Yakima Kanat on horseback to Steve McQueen driving a Ford Mustang. I spoke with him in Atlanta, and we started by talking about what he does at TCM. What I do at TCM is a um, is senior. I'm a senior director of of original programming, uh, where I oversee the development and production of interstitial content. You know, little uh, video pieces that fall in between the movies that we air on the network. That um, kind of contextualizes uh, what the films are about, what the programming is about. Um, and so I've been doing that for several years. I started doing that first with Filmstruck, uh, and then I transferred over into the into TCM doing that too. But I've been with TCM for 20, uh, it'll be 22 years next month that I've been here. Wow. And um, so I haven't been doing that job the whole time. I started off in the on-air promotions uh, uh, wing where we would make promos and other things, including the uh, in-memoriam uh, spots at the each year. Um, I produced four of those over the, over the time that I was with that department. And I still have a hand in it still today in, in terms of kind of helping to uh, prioritize who makes the final cut and who doesn't. On, on Nitrateville, one of the most common comments every year is how much better the TCM one is than the Academy's one. Well, we, we, you know, we try to maintain our own bar, you know, our own standard of, of making them, making them great and making them not just wonderful for the viewers, but especially for those who have departed. And, and I mean, that's, that's who we were remembering. So we try to, we try to include as many people as we can. Um, and sometimes we can't include everybody. And, sure. um, but um in addition to all that, I also program, uh, along with my boss and another one of my colleagues, uh, the uh, TCM Film Festival, uh, as well as the TCM Cruise. So I, 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 along with Charlie and Stephanie, we choose the films that we that we show at the festival, as well as what we show on board the, uh, the ship uh, for the cruise. Well, you know, that's another thing that we do every year when there is a TCM festival is uh, a friend of mine who attends it every year, you know, kind of talks about what she saw. So we just uh, we just had chats about uh, Gordon Gebert talking about uh, the flame and the arrow and things like that. Um, yeah. Gordon Gebert being a, a favorite of mine for pretty obvious reasons, although he's no <laughs> relation. So. so how do you decide? What kind of interstitials are going to talk about what? Well, it, it's a, it, in large part, it's it's it is what what is the programming theme that that I could add to with with a with a new piece of of original programming. Um, what else could I add that you're not going to see in a in a one of the hosted intros, for example? And so we try to we try to try to create something that is, you know, that not only contextualizes the programming, but also entertains in its own way. 
and it's you know it's also something that people can repeat watch um and and garner something else from the programming that the original pro, pro the the original production brings out so a lot of these i mean i notice people who are no longer with us turn up in these sometimes i assume there's just a huge library of of interviews and things like that that you have to draw on for that yeah we have a we have a vast library of archived interviews that we started we started recording i think in 1996 or maybe 97 and it was it was called the archive project and we tried we lined up as many people as we could to do not a full career retrospective but but just hitting upon some of the highlights and some of their stories and that you know that makes up the bulk of of um of, of you know not only the interstitials that i oversee but a lot of the shorter pieces called word of mouths that uh, that are used to promote uh, a specific film showing uh, in a, in a, a, a during any given month. All right. Well, let's talk about your book, which I have here. Now, were you interested in doing something about stunt people, or did that come up and you're like, me, me, I could do that? Nope, that was all me. Um, okay. I p- made a pitch to TCM in November of 2019. Uh, that you know, in, in in the pitch, I you know I stated that I've been in invested in uh with stunt work in the movies for over 10 years and i've been doing volumes and volumes of research not just uh paper research but also interviews that i had done with many people over the years and i said i you know i think that there's a there's a need for this book and it was my first very first pitch i had ever made for a book so i figured that if they turned me down then at least at least there would be some learning uh, sure. to be gleaned from it in terms of what works as a book proposal and what doesn't. Well, they went for it right away. And um, I got the nod, the official green light to write it at the end of March, 2020. And so <laughs> then I thought, oh crap, now I have to write a book. And uh, oh crap, we're in the middle of a pandemic. So it actually worked out and just, just that it gave me so much freedom uh, to do it from my basement and to do my day job and also this sometimes simultaneously. Um, so it, it was it was kismet because if I didn't have that alone time, I, I'm not sure I'm not sure how I'm not sure how good the book would have been. <laughs> <All right. laughs> yeah, it's interesting. You you make a very good point right at the start that. You know, stunt work is so much of the movies, and especially modern movies. Um, so much of it is focused on big, you know, action that's really beyond human abilities, and that's where computers take over a lot of times, but it does involve actual humans. Um, and yet, it's never really gotten the respect. I mean, you think of something else physical people do, choreography. You know, the, the something like the Academy certainly respects a Gene Kelly or whoever. And you just don't, you know, there wasn't the same kind of regard for guys who knew how to make a horse, you know, do a flying W without killing it. You know, I mean, it, it, you did have 
Yakima right, right, cannot right. finally get you know a special one. I just watched the clip of that with Charlton Heston giving the uh, the Oscar to him. But you know that's that's basically one guy in eighty years of Oscars or whatever. So. Well, first of all, th- there was another one uh, after okay. Yakima Canut received his honorary Oscar in uh, 1966. Uh, Hal Nita, he received an honorary okay. Academy Award in, um, I think it was 2012. I may have been a little later than that. But uh, he's, he, he and Yakima are the only two to be formally recognized uh, for their stunt work. Now, I would add, however, that there is prob- you could probably include a third one. And that's Jackie Chan. He was given given an honorary Oscar, uh, I think, five years ago. And I would argue it's probably, uh, you know, a large part is because of his stunt work. But yeah. you know, he's also just a major a major movie star. Um, where you know where I see stunts in you know in terms of their overall appreciation in the industry, I think it's I think it is uh, uh, it, it it's it's taken for granted. I think, in in large part, it is it's taken for granted in the sense that there's this assumption that anybody can wreck a car, or <laughs> anybody can fall anybody can fall off a building, or uh, you know dive through a window. But there is there is a, there's a way of making it look cinematic, and a way of making it look exciting. YouTube is full of people doing, you know, stunts, uh, whether, whether it is jumping off a building or, uh, you know, taking a skateboard down a flight of stairs, there are a number of things that people do for the attention and for, for the, just for the act of doing it. And you also, you can also see this in feature films like Jackass. I love watching that stuff. I love watching, I love Jackass. I love watching those stupid videos on YouTube. But that's not the kind of stunt work that I'm talking about in terms of how it impacts not only the plot, but also of character. And that is what great stunt work in the movies does, is it, it, it shapes the movie, just like any other discipline does. So... I think in large part, people in the industry, and maybe I wouldn't say the academy because I don't know, I don't have any insight as to into what they, you know, what they, what their thinking is. But I think a large part of it is just people don't quite know what stunt work, what is involved in, in what stunt work is. And as I note in the book several times, there is an art and a science that goes into stunt work. When you are uh, shooting something like, let's say, Buster Keaton's Steamboat Bill Jr. from 1928. And he is standing in front of a building where the wall falls during a storm, and he's standing still. And the wall falls, and because of an open window in the upper floor of that wall, he passes safely right through it. Well, that that was a real wall. It had massive weight to it probably over a thousand pounds of weight. Had Keaton and his um, close collaborator, a guy named Fred Gabori, had they not worked it out scientifically with math and worked out where exactly he should stand, uh, taking into account wind velocity, uh, making sure that the wall was constructed in such a way that it didn't warp and 
and mess up the trajectory of its fall. For them to pull that off and to do it safely, um, that that there's an art there's an art to that, and so I don't think a lot of people take that into account. That still today, that is what's involved with uh, with stunt work in the movies. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, one of the things I thought was really interesting going through your book, which is arranged basically chronologically and in terms of major films or the people behind certain major films to an extent, um, was just kind of seeing what qualified as the height of stunt work at a particular time. And I mean, it starts off with something we don't see a lot of now, which is horse stunt work. You know, when you when you consider the stunts in, in Westerns, uh, it's it's really tied to the overall popularity of the Western genre as a whole. Westerns were a huge part of Hollywood in the 1920s uh, with William S. Hart, Tom Mix, and many other uh, Harry Carey Sr. Uh, they were huge stars in and of themselves. And because Westerns were so popular, there was a need for stunt for horse-based stunts. And it was, so it it kind of ran, it worked hand in hand with the popularity of the genre itself. When Westerns fell out of favor in the thirties, I should say when they fell out of favor as being A-list productions and becoming becoming more of a poverty row staple, uh, stunts went with them. And so you didn't have that kind of stunt work in the in in major Hollywood productions during the 1930s, for the most part. There were lots of exceptions, uh, most notably those that that had involved uh, airplanes, but also some cars. There was some car stunt work and some high falls, but for the most part. The, the the big classic stunt sequences of movies, you don't see a lot of them during the 30s in these big major productions, but you do see them in Poverty Row Westerns. And when John Ford had a chance to make to, to come back to the Western genre after making so many of them in the, in the 20s, he came back to it in 1939 with Stagecoach. And when he came back to, to the Western, he brought back uh, a fellow that was a friend of his named John Wayne uh, to star in it. And when and John Wayne had acted in so many of those uh, 1930s Poverty Row Westerns that he recommended that they bring along Yakima Canut, uh, who was also a major figure in those 1930 Westerns to create stunts for Stagecoach. And so it was, it was very much a part of how people perceive the Western as a genre. And, and that, I think, went in tandem with how they perceive the Western horse-based stunts um, that, you, that you saw in those, in those pictures. Yeah, no, I thought it was interesting that, yeah, I mean, the book does kind of jump from the end of the silent period to, to 1939. And I think that's just a reflection of, you know, so many things of the silent era went out of fashion as soon as sound came in. And one of them was relying on that level of action. You know, you think of like a big production, even like Mutiny on the Bounty, you know, it's big scenes. They're not action scenes in that sense. They're scenes of the actors, you know, getting mad at each other, basically. Um, so you really, 
you know, it did kind of take till stagecoach to bring back the idea that you could build a movie around not only the the stunts themselves, but sort of the narrative drive of one continuous action sequence. Right. And I will say that, again, there are many exceptions to this in the 30s. There were uh, Warner Brothers um, had a series of of swashbucklers, uh, most notably Captain Blood in 1935 and um, The Adventures of Robin Hood in 1938. A lot of stunt work in that in the in those films. but not not a whole lot involving horses. Yeah. Um, and I, I would say that those were the exception uh, rather than the rule during that era of, of Hollywood. Yeah. And I mean, that, you know, those two, I mean, particularly like Robin Hood is kind of, you know, all but explicitly nodding back to Douglas Fairbanks in the in the silent era. Um, you know, again, hey, here's Errol Flynn, the new, you know, the new Douglas Fairbanks, as I think Wayne in some ways was like the new Tom Mix, you know, there, it was, Hey, remember when you liked a guy like this? Well, here's a new young one. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now there is, you know, mentioning Ford. I mean, there is one great stunt that we've seen repeated many times over the years that you mentioned in airmail when the flyer, you know, flies, flies the airplane through the open hangar. And I think that's, you know, that's something, and again, another genre we don't really have much anymore. I mean, there are bits of it, but, uh, you know, flying stunts, that was something that came out of, you know, how World War One taught so many guys to fly in a not entirely responsible manner, uh, not, not what we associate with modern airlines. Um, and, you know, so that was kind of, that was a, a subgenre that, you know, it gets nods back. I mean, you think of things in like uh, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World where they fly through the billboard. You know, you, you get nods to it, but that was really something that belonged to a particular period, all that flying. Yeah, uh, I, I I would say that that's true. I mean, there, there was something there was something about those kind the, those type of airplanes with the open cockpit um, that made them, um, I don't know, almost... Uh, Almost a uh, there was there was a heightened sense of of danger involved there because the planes were so they weren't exactly sturdy. <laughs> yeah. And when you when you see when you see these planes uh, flying close to the ground or uh, through a hangar like you saw in airmail, uh, there's there's something there's a thrilling aspect to it. Um, the guy that did that, by the way, in airmail was Paul Mance, uh, who had just begun is um his film career as a as a precision pilot and mance continued to do stuff like that um up until uh well i I write about another book that he another film that he worked on called 12 o'clock kai where he belly belly landed a a b-17 bomber um so mance mance was very much part part of that generation of flyers I will say that there there are a number of 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 plane based stunt work throughout Hollywood history. Um, it just wasn't quite the nature of the of the barnstorming type that you saw in the in the twenties and in the early thirties with films like Wings and Hell's Angels and Lost Squadron and uh, there's another film called Lilac Time which has some some great plane footage. But you do see it again and again in uh, later films. You said Mad Mad World. 
but then you had um, the uh, the Robert Redford film, uh, the Great Waldo Pepper. Thank you. The name just escaped me. That was it. The Great Waldo Pepper, and you know that film had a had the, uh, the distinction of having one of the best flyers in the business working on it, a guy named Frank Tallman, uh, who had worked on. He was the one that flew the plane through the billboard in in Mad Mad World. Uh, and so you see, you see a, a there's a generational aspect of pilots kind of teaching the next generation. Uh, Paul Mance was very much a part of that with Frank Tallman. Um, he even went into business with Frank Tallman, uh, starting a, a business called uh, Tallman's uh, <laughs> Aviation, and they 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 specialized in creating aerial-based stunts for motion pictures. Um, and, and I gotta say, you know, that kind of thrill of seeing stunts in the air is still with us today. Uh, and I would say the thrill of seeing practical planes, actual planes flying through the air. Um, and this brings me to Top Gun, Maverick, the new, right. the new film. That those, there, as far as I could tell, there was very little CGI in that film. And they, and from what I understand, they had these actors actually in these planes uh, being filmed in, re in real situations. And so there, I would say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call that a stunt work, but I will say that there is an element of danger to it. But, and there, but there, is also a, uh, there is also an aspect to how it was shot that I think harkens back to those earlier films like Airmail and uh, Wings and Hell's Angels, where you see people actually flying through the air uh, in the course of the uh, in, in the course of the films. Yeah, no, it's very much like what Wellman did on Wings, where he's you know had the guys you know in a in a two seater. The actors are in one seat of a two seater, you know, pantomiming flying the plane, and there's someone else actually doing it behind them or whatever. Um, and I think that that authenticity is what we lost for so long. You know, it just went to to kind of lazy uh, rear projection for so long. And now, yeah. now when you can do anything with computers, there there is kind of a desire to to make it more real again. That's true. Um, I will say, going back to Wings, uh, in a in, in an interview that Lou Ayers, not Lou Ayers, uh, Buddy Rogers, did with um, with TCM long time ago, he said that he was taught how to fly those planes. So that, so he claimed that he was actually flying it and not, not, you know, being doubled up with a, with an actual pilot. Um, I, I imagine that could be true, but I, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Well, in just some things, I mean, spoiler, when Richard Arlen gets shot in that i'm assuming he's not really controlling his own plane and pretending to be wounded at the same time so right right <laughs> but uh, yeah i mean it's interesting you know you, to go back to the silent period i mean there are a lot of stars then whose persona was built around them really doing these things to some extent we mentioned keaton you know that's his acrobatic abilities are one obviously harold lloyd climbing in safety last you talk quite a bit about um which is interesting because they were kind of talking about the realness of the fakery i guess you'd call it he is actually 
on something up in the air. He just has more below him than bare pavement, forty stories down. But well, that was that was a that was a trick often used by filmmakers of the time. You know, there I found a still from another production where you see a, a man on top of a facade and a woman is hanging over it, and below her, about I don't know, seven or eight feet, is a pile of mattresses. Yeah, you, you have all the crews around. Uh, you know, should she fall, they would, you know, they would have somebody there to spot her. And I imagine that when Lloyd was on his own facade, uh, there was probably a very similar kind of situation going on just out of frame. One of the things that you see in the in the stunt work of the 50s and 60s is that it's still full of guys who got their start in the silent era. And I suppose that shouldn't be that unusual. It's you know, not that many years. That's certainly within a normal sort of career lifespan. But it's kind of amazing to read about these guys, you know, still doing the things that they had invented in the 20s, doing them for movies in the 60s. Uh, you know, particularly think of Paul Mance, who died doing a stunt on Flight of the Phoenix. But, uh, you know, just a lot of people like there that. Were. There were. Yeah. You're right. Uh, in fact, in that crash that Paul Mance perished in, there was actually another stuntman aboard that plane. And it was a guy named Bob Rose. And Bob Rose started as a stuntman during the silent era. Uh, he was uh, he was very busy. He was profiled in uh, a lot of the um, uh, uh, publicity mags, magazines of the day. Uh, so he was a fairly well-known stuntman of that time. Flight of the Phoenix might have been his last film to, to, uh, to do stunt work in. I'm not sure about that. Another character was a guy named Harvey Perry, and Harvey Perry began began in the silent era, um, and uh, finished out the 30s as a stunt double for Jimmy Cagney, and continued to work as a, as a as a working stuntman throughout the 50s and into the 60s, and was still working, um, not necessarily as a stuntman but as a character actor. Uh, as late as 1980. In fact, he, he appears uh, in Raging Bull as I think as a referee. So, um, and, I, and I don't even think that was his last credit. Uh, in fact, I want to say it was Tough Guys from 1986 that uh, that Harvey Perry was a part of. But I would need to look. I would need to look that up to fact check it. But yeah, you're right. A lot of these guys just continue to work, uh, and that's still true today. You know, there's. There are people who are still uh, stunting here and there um, that uh, have been in the business for 50 years. Uh, it, you know, there's not quite as many as there used to be, but people like Terry Leonard uh, is are still are still is still working, not necessarily as a stuntman, but as, certainly as a stunt coordinator. Um, and up at, just up until a few years ago, Jeannie Epper was was still willing to to take on some work. So. Um, yeah, it's, it is a, just like, just like acting, it, it's a, it's in their blood and, and they are, they're often very hesitant to leave it behind. You know, after the war, we kind of go to something else, which is motorized stunts. You talk about in particular, you know, the, the, the name really associated with pulling off stunts, you know, in something motorized is Steve McQueen. Because he did both, you know, really brought motorcycle stunts in with The Great Escape and then um, 
the the great uh, car chase and bullet, which is still kind of first and best in that genre. Um, tell me about uh, you know cars cars entering the picture. Well, cars uh, were were a part of of film stunt work before bullet. Uh, there were earlier films like the great gangster cycle of the 1930s, uh, like Scarface and Public Enemy. You did have cars being turned over occasionally, uh, being run into walls. Um, certainly high-speed chases were a big part. You, you had a lot of comedic action in films like The Bank Dick from 1940, um, some Abbott and Costello stuff, uh, uh, even into the 50s. And you, you had a lot of vehicular stunt work in It's a Mad Mad World, um, as well as Thunder Road. And uh, those last two films uh, featured the work of a guy named Kerry Lofton, uh, who was a stunt coordinator and stuntman uh, who was behind the action in Bullet. Um, and I think what Bullet, the reason why there was a new era of car-based stunts from Bullet I think is a, is tied in large part to the changes in the automotive industry. Cars by this time were were designed and manufactured to be a lot faster uh, and also a lot more indicative of personality and style. Uh, cars cars in the fifties uh, in the during the Eisenhower era were largely marketed as a family thing and not necessarily as you know as a as an ind individual expression and when you got into the 60s with these uh different car manufacturers uh introducing newer models to to the market they they were as i said a lot more expressive of an individual's personality and i think that's what mcqueen gravitated towards with uh with bullet with must with the mustang he had an he saw an opportunity to kind of scratch that itch and um, introduce a character whose whose ex, whose development as a character as this as this um, uh, hard nosed detective was tied up in this car chase that he that he developed along with Carrie Lofton and, and that was just the beginning you know that that started a a whole slew of car chases during the seventies that also was indicative of the the downside of, of the Western as it was dying down. There was less and less need for horse-based stunts as the Western kind of lost popularity in the 60s. Uh, again, a lot of exceptions to that. But a lot, a lot of these stunt guys and stunt women now needed to find a new era new area to kind of excel at and to specialize in and a lot of them went into into into, uh, into cars yeah no it's interesting i mean i i think of some of those older car chase things and it always seems like they're out on a country road and you know it's just people people going around curves and it's always sped up you know, it's just not, it doesn't look very realistic to our eyes at all. And to compare that to something like, um, like the bullet chase, which, you know, as you say, really reflects personality. And, you know, it talk about, uh, in your book, you talk about, uh, you know, selecting the car for the bad guys that, you know, they, they felt like one of the cars, the Ford Fairlane just couldn't hack it. 
and they wanted something that you know where you know it was really felt you know mcqueen was up against a, a proper uh rival who was also ominous looking you know that that is just in a whole other you know area um and it's also interesting i think that uh, you know he chose the director for bullet based on previous uh car chase work which is probably the first time that ever happened in you know in hollywood history well there was a there was, the film that you're talking about is a, a movie called robbery right uh from it's a british film i think from 1967 or maybe 66, but Peter Yates directed that one. And there is uh, one corker of a car chase at the beginning of the film. Uh, and so that's, yeah, that's what brought Yates to McQueen's attention. And that's why he was hired. Yeah, and another thing that you talk about, and I think this is really, get you know, a pivotal to the, the whole, um, the way, I would say the way movies in general have developed, which is the James Bond films. Um, and interestingly, you don't really go into, you know, Goldfinger from Marshall with Love, anything like that. It really starts with Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And that's where you start seeing the movie sort of designed around and driven around these big action sequences, uh, particularly skiing in that case, which comes up a number of times in the Bond films. But I feel like, you know, that's sort of like changed how action movies work in a lot of ways i mean everything to some extent is sort of built like a bond film these days certainly you know a a uh, indiana jones movie or something like that is you know is fundamentally structured like a bond film built around you know what exotic things are we going to be able to do in this movie uh yeah i think that's pretty true uh in the case of raiders you do have a an opening sequence uh that kind of sets up the rest of the film uh that you know coming right out of the gate and that 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 is something that the bond films um really started in you know in, in style um and it, i don't even i wouldn't even say that began with secret service i would say really began more with uh, the spy who loved me um with uh james bond skiing off the top of a mountain into, right. <laughs> you know, into an abyss um but yeah, I, I would say that that I think the Bond films had have made an indelible mark in terms of the production value and how stunt sequences are planned and executed. The story behind that that ski jump was they they went to a mountain, I believe it was up in Canada, and they they had to wait several days uh, for just the right. Uh, for just the right moment to shoot that sequence. It, because the weather was so unpredictable uh, with the snow and the wind speed that in order to, to not only do it safely, but also do it in a way where you can actually film the stuntman, in this case, Rick Sylvester, uh, actually doing the jump, uh, there was a very limited window of time. This took a lot of money. You know, to, to, to send a, a second unit crew headed by John Glenn up to this remote mountaintop and shoot this sequence, you, you just, you didn't do that that often uh, in Hollywood uh, to, to go to that kind of expense for what amounted to, you know, 45 seconds of screen time. And of course, it really is Roger Moore. We know that. Um... <laughs> 
No, we know that it, if it's, it, we know that it is not Roger Moore. If anything <laughs> involves much movement at all, it's not Roger Moore. But oh, right, right, yes, yeah. He he was definitely brought a um, a different charisma and personality to the role. But yeah, Roger Moore was not known for his uh, for his willingness to uh, to take uh, take a punch. So one time I used to do some promos that shot at uh, NBC with Willard Scott right after the Today Show ended. And one time the producer and I were, were he apparently knew Gene Shalit. So we're, we're chatting there and Roger Moore had just been on the Today Show to talk about uh, the World Wildlife Fund or whatever. And Moore walks by and Shalit immediately says, oh, look, it's Roger Moore. No, wait, he's moving. It must be a stunt double. So... <laughs> Well, Roger did have a uh, a great squadron of stunt doubles over the years. Um, there was uh, include there was guys like Martin Grace, uh, Paul Weston, and and several others uh, who doubled him from you know in well really more than one picture. Um, in fact, there's a photo that I, I stumbled across where Moore is flanked by all of his stunt doubles over the years. It, it, this and this was after. I think this is after Moore had had retired from the role, uh, or maybe it was shortly before. But anyway, yeah, he did. He he certainly did have a lot of doubles, and you know what? There's there's no shame in that. Right. Uh, you know, actor actor knows his limitations. And he's <laughs> willing to he or she is willing to let the professionals do the work. That's great. Now another film I was it was fun to read about because it was a film. I mean, I was in high school when it came out, and I was pretty dismissive of you know, a hick movie like that. And it's one of those ones that I showed to my kids. And now I kind of really appreciate it, not only for the wildness of the action, but, you know, just the charisma of the stars is carried over very nicely, which is Smokey and the Bandit, which again, Hal Mead, and we talked about him earlier. Um, And, you know, one of the first things I did was look in the index to see if you mentioned The Stuntman. And the actual movie, The Stuntman, only gets... A brief mention in a book about stuntmen, but the you know Hooper that was kind of the the hick version of the stuntman uh, also gets a lot of consideration because of the level of what Hal Needham was pulling off. Well, when you when you say hick, I think what you're referring to is the fact that Smokey and the Bandit was made for a Southern audience. Yeah, you know Needham had worked with Burt Reynolds, who was from Georgia. Uh, went to school in Florida, uh, very much a Southern bred uh, uh, icon of, of movies, uh, had made several pictures based in the South, most notably uh, White Lightning and Gator. Gator, uh, yes. Yeah. And uh, of course, Burr Reynolds was also involved with uh, Deliverance that also had a little bit of stunt work in it. Um, so Needham, I think, did a, made a very, uh, a, very astute, shrewd, decision and that was to write a screenplay for a movie that was really aimed at one audience and that was the audience in the south and so not only did it involve people from the south but also took place and was shot in the south and smoking the bandit was would have been the top box office winner of 1977 had it not been for one other film <laughs> yes <laughs> That would be but, Star Wars. Yes. Well, you know, I grew up in Kansas, and both of those played forever and ever are in my local theaters. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I would say to anybody that dismisses Smokey and the Bandit, 
what I would encourage them to do is to look at the film again, but instead of it, instead of looking at it as a good old boy uh, uh, farce, look at it as a screwball comedy. That's essentially what Smokey and the Bandit is. And if you look at it through that lens, it plays a lot different and it plays a lot I would say, yeah, I would just say it plays a lot more differently for people who might otherwise dismiss Smokey the Bandit as being, you know, a, made for a regional audience only. I think it's a lot more universal than that. Yeah, no, I mean, as I say, I mean, I was, I was just a little snot back then, and you know, now, now oh. I appreciate what was, what was good about it, you know. So, and about your your other observation about the nineteen eighty film Stuntman. Um, I wrestled with that a little bit because I, I wasn't sure if I should, because I, I knew that I didn't really have room for both Hooper and the stuntman. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the reason why I went with Hooper over the stuntman is I felt, I felt the stuntman was a lot more about uh, the nature of movies, about uh, illusion and reality. And it was, it was, it, it addresses topics that are really far outside the, the purview of, of this book that I, that I wrote. And not, to take nothing away from what the director, Richard Rush, uh, as well as the uh, stunt people did behind the film, you know, in the making of that film, um, I just felt Hooper was, uh, there was more of a wider variety of types of stunts and also personnel that I could speak about and introduce people like Buddy Joe Hooker Janet Varney, as well as, uh, you know, the um, talking a little, a, a lot more about how Needham's own stunts, all, about his own stunt work in the movies. Because I was only able to touch upon that a little bit with Smokey and the Bandit. But with Hooper, I was able to talk a, a lot more about Needham, as well as his background as a stuntman. Well, let's go into the, the 80s and 90s. Now, it's interesting. I watched uh, the rock recently with one of my sons, you know, which is kind of a cheesy and, uh, you know, it's, it's the popcorn movie that it always was. But the thing that really struck me was I was watching, you know, actual humans moving around on ropes, you know, jumping from, you know, from one building to the next or a platform onto something else or whatever. And, you know, you can, do a lot of things with computers, but things seem a lot less real than they did even just that long ago. Um, I forget when the, you know, when the rock is made, but you know, it's maybe 25 years old. It's not insanely long ago. Um, where do you think the rock came out in 96? Okay. The rock came out in 96. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, I mean, how do you see the the era of stunt work has has changed as computers have entered the picture? Well, certainly it has changed. Uh, they have had to the stunt the stunt community has had to adapt to the usage of CGI. But I don't think CGI is the death knell of stunt work. I think that there is always going to be a a market uh, a need a desire rather for uh, audiences to see actual people pulling off these gags. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but one of the 
clearest examples of this is when you when you consider Raiders of the Lost Ark to its to the last sequel that came out, um, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. When Raiders came out in '81, there there was CGI was not a thing, but uh, having actual human beings being dragged underneath a moving diesel truck, that was a thing. And that's what Terry Leonard doubling Harrison Ford pulled off in just one stunt sequence in Raiders of the Lost Ark. When you compare to what they did with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, when you had Shia LaBeouf swinging on a vine through what is obviously a CGI created jungle, yeah. <laughs> there's just something about it that just does not ring true. And it's, it's, it's particularly acute when you have raiders, as well as the Temple of Doom and the Last Crusade, already setting the template of how Indiana Jones should interact with the world. You need to have Indiana Jones actually jumping off a horse onto the back of a moving tank, as I write about in the book. You, that, that's what we go to see Indiana Jones for. We don't go to Indiana Jones to see him uh, doing battle uh, on a couple of cars next to what is obviously a CGI created cliff. You know, it, so ironically, the, my favorite scene, uh, well, two of my favorite scenes in, in, in uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is the opening sequence with, uh, with him hustling with the Russians inside that ginormous warehouse. But also he and uh, Shia LaBeouf's character, Mutt, they are involved in a motorcycle chase through a college campus. Well, that was all done practically. It was all, that was a real stunt people. Those are real stunt people driving through, um, through a motorcycle. That's what I respond to. Uh, and that's not to say that there isn't room for CGI. I love the MCU. And that's all, that's mostly CGI. Um, not to say that stunt people are not heavily involved. They are. Uh, you, you, you only have to look at something like Captain America and the Winter Soldier to see that. But I like films that have more practicality when it comes to pulling off these stunts. Um, and as I said at the beginning, the stunt community has adapted to this by using the tools of computer graphics and digital, uh, digital tools to help them create stunts that are more crazy more death-defying than ever. Uh, so when you look at a film like Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, that's Tom Cruise outside the Burj Khalifa. That is actually him. <laughs> right. But he, he's not, he, he is tethered. He's tethered to a safety line. Sure. That was all digitally erased. And in, in, in that was because of the tools that they have. But they were able to do that kind of stuff and make it that much more thrilling. Um, and there are many other examples where digital, um, where rigging to keep the stuntman or the star safe has been erased, thus allowing that suspension of disbelief to take root.
Danger on the Silver Screen, 50 Films Celebrating Cinema's Greatest Stunts by Scott McGee is out now from TCM and Running Press. There will be a link in the show post at nitrateville.com. Wallace Reed was a big star in the teens and early 20s, but he's mainly remembered now for the scandal of his death while trying to kick an addiction to morphine. So, a famous name, but we really don't know much about Reed, the screen personality. A step toward correcting that comes in the form of a new Kickstarter from Nitrateville member Ed LaRusso, who's working on a DVD release of a fateful film for Reed, 1919's Valley of the Giants. I spoke with him at his home in Maine. All right, so how many uh, Kickstarters is this that you're, you've done now? Which number will this be? Uh, this will be the 21st. Wow. Yeah, since 2014. And tell me about the film. The film itself has quite a history. I was When I was boning up on Wallace Reed, I was going through my the biography I have here by E.J. Fleming, which came out in 2007. And he does a little section on the Valley of the Giants. And as of 2007, the film was believed lost, uh, which I hadn't. I just assumed everybody knew that the film was in the Russian archive, and you know, it, and there it was. But you know, what can you do? But according to him, as of 2007, it was considered lost and had been since 1920. So when the Goss Filmafond decided to repatriate 10 films to the Library of Congress in 2010, this was a big thing. I mean, there's this was to me anyway, the, the, the jewel in the crown of that of that donation was this film, because all of a sudden it survived. I mean, right. and it was and it was complete. So what where does it fit in the kinds of films that he tended to make back then? Well, I think it was, it was, he has an interesting career. I think it goes back uh, farther than most people realize. He started in 1910 when he would have been 19. Um, and he did, as they did in the, the early teens, uh, uh, endless one and two reelers. Um, and then by the mid teens, he started moving up and moving into feature films. And he's in films like, the Avenging Conscience with uh, Blanche Sweet and Mae Marsh and people like that, but he's basically an uncredited player. He's in The Birth of a Nation. He plays um, a blacksmith in that. He's in Intolerance uh, as one of the as a uncredited soldier. So he's sort of worked his way up in, into the mid up through the mid teens. Made the transition to features and then he went through a period where he was sort of a leading man to the, the divas of the day so he was uh in, in several films with Geraldine Farrar he's in films with um, Elsie Ferguson and Lillian Gish and Dorothy Gish uh 
basically as the leading man, but not the star. So kind of the Robert Montgomery part or the George. Yeah, Brent the part. George, the George Brent part kind of thing where he, you know, he's got a lot of screen time, but the story's not about him. Yeah. I mean, he's, 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 he's the, the, he's the decoration at this point. He's like the, the epitome of the, the matinee idol, um, in, in silent films. He, and, you know, I guess Francis X Bushman was considered a matinee <laughs> idol. I don't see it, but, uh, you know, Carlisle <laughs> Blackwell, you know, these, these kinds of people. And then he gets, uh, DeMille gets hold of him at some point in the latest teens and he sort of he's still playing those kinds of parts, but he's he's turning into the star so that when he's in films in the late teens or early 20s, uh, like the affairs of Anatole, um, these kinds of films, he's really the star of it. Um, yeah, that's the one that I've seen, the affairs of Anatole. I think David yeah. Shepard released that on DVD, and I don't know that anything else has gotten a a major label release before now. I mean, not counting intolerance, obviously. Right. But, right. uh, which you, you know, which you'd never even, you'd never even spot him in that. I mean, he's right. part of the Polonian arc of that. I mean, he's all done up with a helmet and, you know, a fur vest and the whole bit. So, right. but that's probably the film that if anybody remembers him for having possibly seen a film, that's probably the one. Right. Um, uh, but that comes after, uh, Valley of the Giants. In 1919, he also had hit on a sort of a formula where he did a film called The Roaring Road, which survives, in which he plays a character called Dusty Rhodes. And he's, it's a madcap, it's a dr- dramatic film, but it's this action-adventure film uh, about a cross-country car race. And it was a smash hit, and that was the film that actually put him on the map as a star in his own right, and not just a DeMille star or the George Brent, who you right. know worked with <laughs> Geraldine Farrar and Gloria Swanson, etc. And he did, I think, three or four or five of these where he played the same character, this Dusty Rhodes, up through the early 20s. And that was the film, once, once that hit, that seems to be the one where he decided to take charge of his career and he wanted to do these sort of adventure kinds of films as opposed to the drawing room romance dramas. And that's how he gets involved with the Valley of the Giants because it's not that he's not the pretty boy in the film. He's not, you know, all dressed up in a tuxedo and, and, you know, glamorously lit which he apparently despised he hated those kinds of roles <laughs> but he was certainly well suited for them physically i mean he has what you know another generation would have called perfect man in the arrow shirt looks right exactly right yeah he's got the perfect profile he's six foot one i mean so for his for that time he was tall i mean that was extremely tall right um i mean he, he had everything about him was movie star his he marries Dorothy Davenport, who's a fairly big star, whose father is Harry Davenport, an actor in the silent era and long after. Um, oh, so I never, I never realized that, that yeah. uh, she was related to yeah Harry Davenport, who's the, yeah, that's, the that's old codger yeah. in so many movies. Yeah, Right, right. He's the lovable old codger in all those MGM films in the late 30s and 40s, yeah. 
so he grew up in this this, this showbiz thing, and and he sort of was sort of born to be in the movies, even before the movies existed, really. Um, so by 1919, um, he's a, he's a he's a major star. He's he's Jesse Lasky, famous players. I guess that's pre Paramount, but in that that era, he he jumps with the Roaring Road. He jumps. He's like all of a sudden their number one star. Now, what happened? Uh, I mean, Valley of the Giants would prove fateful and ultimately fatal for him. What happened on the film? Well, I had to go back and reread it because uh, even though I had uh, I had read this book before, it was 15 years ago, Fleming's biography. I had thought I had remembered, misremembered that he had suffered this terrible um, accident while filming the Valley of the Giants, and that's the way the film was sort of advertised in 1919. And it's not true. He suffered the accident. The accident happened before they even started filming. So when you go back and look at Fleming's book and he describes it and they're, they're filming in Northern California and they're uh, basically working out of a town called Arcata up by Eureka in the Northern part of the state. And they were taking a train into basically a, a, a timber camp town, like a little company town that was survived that was, that existed only because of the sawmill in Corbel, K-O-R-B-E-L, Corbel, Corbel, California. And it was not a passenger line. It, it was a, a logging line. I mean, that, that's all it did. It went back and forth, dragging these logs out of the woods out to where they could dump them in a river and float them wherever. And they were going to filming site, and he, he Reed, and Grace Darmond, who was the leading lady, and a, a bunch of crew we're going to take this train to the filming site. And because it was not a passenger train, they had to attach a caboose to it. So they were all packed in this caboose. They're on this narrow gauge line uh, that apparently had, was famous for never being regulated or maintained because it was not a passenger line. Uh, and they, they were, they were trundling along and uh, they were going over a Creek when the caboose just simply tipped over off the track uh. and it rolled down this banking and landed in a river and it might have only been 15 or 20 feet but the thing basically somersaulted over and over and over again going down this hill and reed got out he went back in and, and dragged out grace darmond who was all done up in a frilly white dress because that was her costume and she was completely soaked in blood. He saved a couple of other people. Um, and they sent a doctor from Arcata because they didn't have one on the train, obviously. And he had suffered a, a, a gash at the base of his skull that required like 12 stitches. He had glass embedded in his arm that went to the bone uh. in his arm yeah, I mean, really gross stuff, and he's basically just stitched up. Apparently, Reed also had had back trouble, so of course, this brought all that back as well. So what they did was because they weren't going to, they weren't about to stop filming the film. They gave him the morphine. That was the 
drug du jour for, for pain. And he went back to work and they had to redo uh, apparently filming uh, angles so that you couldn't see Ed where it was stitched. So he wears high collars. He wears hats. He's only filmed from the right side, this kind of thing. Um, and he got, got through the film. But by the time he did, he was totally addicted. And at that point, Paramount, with great warmth, basically worked him to death. Basically, yeah, and then they, and then the, the, because the headlines instantly came out and t- talked about this accident, uh, Paramount, with its heart of gold, decided that what they would do is they turned that into an advertising bit. You know, come see the film where you know Reed was was nearly killed, and it was implied that it happened during the filming. And there's one scene in the film where there's like a runaway train thing and it's, it's packed with car after car uh, piled high with logs and Reed supposedly uh, it was Reed and not a stuntman is seen running along the tops of the logs, jumping from car to car. I mean, you know, he, you know, the, sort of a, almost has become a, a cliche in films, but it was implied they did good to imply that that's where it happened. So of course people, rushed out to see it the film was a huge hit but it wasn't true yeah <laughs> and even the the wife dorothy wrote about it and was always very evasive and um said that he had been hit by a falling log at one point uh, and he just made up all kinds of stories they milked it for years basically and also what paramount did was at that point they really started building up reed's reputation as a drinker and party boy to kind of explain that if he seems a little bit off, you know, because of the drugs, it really wasn't because he was a drug addict. It was because he was, he was drinking, you know, he liked, he liked his drink. So they sort of built up that, that side of the image, which they would not have done otherwise to sort of cover the, the drug part. That's so weird that they're, it's like, well, this is a more socially acceptable form of dissipation. Exactly. So we'll sell that. Well, and also because they weren't responsible for it. Yeah. You know, if he was, if he was a drinker, you know, he was a drinker, that was on him. You know, the, the fact that, that it was the paramount paid doctors who were feeding them, feeding him the, the endless morphine shots at their, you know, that was paramount's decision. You know, they certainly weren't, weren't going to admit to that. So it's really, so it's interesting to finally see, to, to see the film, which by the way, is the whole thing is all of those Russian the films, they, they all have Cyrillic yeah. entry titles. <laughs> so you can't, it's not like you can sort of pick it apart as you're walking, you know, you know, zipping through it and figure out what's going on because it's, it's, you know, truly foreign, but it's interesting to finally see the film which was, you know, I mean, considered lost not that long ago. So it's sort of a fascinating thing. So you still haven't quite seen it. I've seen it, but I've only, at this point, I've, I've only uh, translated the first of the six video files. Okay. But I've gone through to see it just to make sure that it is indeed complete, you know. Yeah. And that it's also, it's also in pretty good condition. And um, it's not high definition. It's basically, it's a copy of a digital file that they had already done 
at, at, at Gus Filmathon that they had already done this. Okay. Um, so it's not like a 4K scan of, of the 35 millimeter. I don't even know what the, what the original what the original film elements what they are that they have. I mean, there's no way to. Right. So you'll translate the titles, and then um, what else goes into it? Music, one assumes. Music, one assumes. Uh, <laughs> probably, probably going to be David Drazen again. Um, who I've, I guess I've used him more than anyone at this point for these projects. And it doesn't really need a lot of, it may not be a 4k, uh, digital scan, but it's, it's in surprisingly good shape. You know, once we've, once we've finally got gone through the politics of, of the, uh, the acquisition, it turns out that these, the 10 films had, there was a donor restriction on them, of course, but nobody really knew that. I mean, and I know Library of Congress had posted articles, they posted clips, you know, of the of the various films. Um, but when I tried to get the film, probably five or six years ago, I was told that, and I don't remember even who this was, but I was told that Library of Congress was planning to translate the films themselves. And it's like, okay, fine. Then when I tried to get it again more recently, I found out that there really there was this donor restriction on it, that it could not be used if the film was going to be commercial, made commercially available. So Mike Sean at Library of Congress apparently got finally got that nailed down and cleaned up. That apparently they had been working on that for a while. Which cleared, which cleared the donor restriction. Okay. And so uh, about when do you think it will come out to backers of uh, Kickstarter? Probably, I'm thinking September. And it may be before. It may be before. Um, and I was just going to do a, a fairly quick turnaround on this one. Um, I just don't have the patience anymore to do the long, you know, <laughs> I, I, I think the first one I did in 2014, I went the I went the the whole limit. I went 30 days. And I mean, it's like, it's like a lifetime waiting for that to, to, you know, go through and finish. Well, and how quickly do you reach the point that, you know, it's fully funded? Um, I don't know. I think the last, other than the first three or four or five, I think so. The, you know, the last, at least the last dozen, they they, they usually um, fund in a day or less. All the time that you're sitting there, you know, sort of milking it for you know seven days, ten days, two weeks, <laughs> whatever. There's that that's just that much longer that it's not being completed. Right. Also. And, you know, it's a thing of diminishing returns. The longer you sit there sitting, waiting, dragging this thing out, the less you're actually bringing in at that point. So, yeah, uh, it's it's just not really worth it. And I know Ben Modell just did like when he did uh, Beverly of Grouse Stark, you know, it was like, what, five days or something. Yeah, <laughs> right. But, you max. know, at this point, there's enough of an audience built up, and you have a trust level that people people react to it pretty much instantly. So yeah, I mean, it's almost a game to see who can get in. You know, who who can be in, who's first, who who can be in the you know top the first ten or whatever. Um, right now, I, if I go out to lunch, I'm liable to wind up in the second hundred if I don't jump on it immediately. <laughs> so. Yeah, 
Not yeah. that there's anything bad about that, but. Well, and I think this one, I, this one will have the, the recognition. The last couple I've done probably haven't had that recognition, but I mean, we've, we've, I've done all the Marion Davies that, right. that there are to do. Uh, the next two that come up uh, there uh, for public domain in January uh, are both going to be reliant on Eastman Museum. I, I still always say Eastman House. Um, and so that's makes that a little bit tentative. Yeah, I mean, like you say, with Marion Davies basically being done at this point, uh, how do you side, decide what else that you feel like releasing, putting the effort into? It's just things that's, that interest me. Uh, Straight as the Way turned out to be one of my favorite projects, and I only grabbed that because it was in the Marion Davies collection at Library of Congress, and it's, uh, there were no, I mean, Matt Moore is the star. There are no big names in it, uh, but it was, I, I saw in several places where Davies was credited as being the uh, executive producer of it. So I thought, well, I'll give that up, you know, that, that, that could be interesting. And it turns out to be a, you know, a, a really nice film. I mean, it's just a really good film. I still have found no evidence at all that she was connected to it directly, but uh, it's just something that just cat, you know, catches your interest. It, uh, you know, once you've finished with, with that main, you know, I'm going to do all the Marion Davies films, uh, kind of thing. It's just whatever, what's available, you know, and, uh, you know, and by the time when something, when the new year comes out and we hit the new list of public domain films, it whittles down really, really fast. By the time you look at what films are complete, what films are available at library of Congress. And by the time you, and which ones have not already been released in some form. And by the time you go through all of these criteria, the list is really small. Right. So then you're looking at, let's say, well, let's see if I can work with Eastman or, you know, the Dutch Eye, which, you know, we uh, both Joe Harvat and I have, have done. Uh, at one point, I almost had a Swanson film from Gus Filmafond, and that just, I got, got so far as to having, uh, they quoted a price. Right. And I then the, the whole thing. Yeah. And then the whole thing just fell through. They just disappeared. And, you know, politics, you know, yeah. there's, there's always. Yeah. So. I hear there's a little commotion in Russia right now. So, yeah, I can see a that. little bit. Yeah. And I, I was actually I won't say I was shocked, but I was surprised that uh, Mike was able to complete right. the whatever negotiations there were to get rid of the stupid donor restrictions you know, from, from these public domain films that had been sitting there for 12 years. So it's all, it's, it's all a learning, you know, it's the next project is always just sort of something, you know, like, well, it's sort of an exploration. The last one I did, I only did it because uh, Edna Mae Spurl, who's the, the heroine in a lot of the, the main films that were shot here in the, this area, this was her uh, film debut in a feature film. So that was enough to hook me on that one. Um, so who knows, you know, everybody has their own, you know, Ben, Ben has the things that, you know, that interests him and that catches, 
uh, his fancy and, and Joe Harvett the same. You know, he's got his little path that he's going. Are there any other Wallace Reed films that uh, might be possibilities? Is that something you might be interested in? Well, there's one other one on on the the list of the the, the, the Russian films, and it is titled. You're fired, 1919, <laughs> and it stars Reed and Wanda Hawley. Oh. Who was, yeah, she was in Comedian. Anatole. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know that's a possibility there. The the Ramon Navarro film, The Arab, was in that list hmm. um, with Alice Terry. Yeah, that's a Re- Rex Alice. Ingram title. Yeah, Rex Ingram type thing. Alice Terry is actually in The Valley of the Giants. Oh. When she when she would have been nineteen years old, she plays the mother. And from what I can see, <laughs> just from what I can see, just scanning through the film, she's in about five seconds of this film, but she's there. The in this Russian set, there's also a Monty Banks film hmm. on in this uh, called Keep Smiling, and I, I mentioned it to Ben just yesterday or the day before, and he said that he had gone, they had looked at it, and. I guess they weren't they weren't terribly impressed <laughs> by it, but um, you know, not, everything can't be a jewel, you know, uh, you know. But I'm a completist, so it's like if it's out there, you know, I'd still like to see it, you know, even if it even if it's not the greatest thing ever done, you know, it's still deserves to be seen. But so th- you know, there, there's some interesting stuff on there. You know, I've still got the the Marion Davies ones. We're still looking at. Uh, um, with Eastman, um, beyond that, it's just whatever comes up, what's available. I still have some sort of stockpiled films. Uh, I've got another Shirley Mason and film in the, in the wings. So you never know. Yeah, no, that's, it's great that, I mean, it's become this thing that we can all be, you know, we can choose to be patrons of the art in whatever way, you know, interests us and amuses us. So, and share share it with everybody else who wants to kick in on a Kickstarter. There's a whole world of uh, you know. There are still so many films that are that are, that are uh, we don't necessarily always have access to them uh, still because of, you know, they're held only in foreign archives. But you never know. Yeah. You know. I mean. Joe and I have both gotten films, uh, you know, from the Dutch Eye. I, I almost had one from Gus Filmathons. I, you know, I've had feelers out too. Um, I've gotten a response actually from Eastman on on one film, but the the price tag was uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, well beyond any Kickstarter I'm ever going to have. So, uh, <laughs> but it but it's still possible, you know. I mean, it is. Yeah, I mean, I feel like. I mean, Eastman certainly is is committed to film screenings, uh, primarily, it seems like. But, you know, the world keeps changing. I mean, we didn't have film screenings for a while, and, you know, now we're back to them. But there are obviously other ways that people are seeing stuff, so you never know. Yeah, and we're I'm even talking here, we've got a, a, an old theater in Augusta, Maine, where that there are... Uh, remodeling, renovating. And I, I had a meeting a couple of weeks ago with the executive director of that project to possibly do into a silent film. I won't say festival, but a show, um, 
at some point in the fairly near future. So it, you never know. I mean, the interest is there. I mean, when Straight is the Way, Joe, Jeff Rapsis um, showed that in Concord, New Hampshire in November of last year because the film in New Hampshire. It wasn't filmed there, but it takes place in New Hampshire. And they, they did two shows at, at this theater in Concord, New Hampshire, and it sold out. Huh. I mean, astonishing. I mean, you know, it wasn't a big festival, you know, where you can go and be seen and, you know, meet old friends and whatever. I mean, it was sort of just, just popped up and there it was. And it was a success. That's music by David Drazen from one of Ed's previous releases, Straight is the Way. Ed's Kickstarter for The Valley of the Giants runs through June 13th and is limited to the first 200 backers. But don't worry, it will be for sale individually later this summer. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Scott McGee and Ed LaRusso, and to Cita Zinc. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. This never happened to the other fella.